This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hi, I'm Bill Hutchison, the program coordinator for broadcast journalism at Seneca College. And in the coming weeks, we're going to feature some of the podcasts created by our four-semester students. First up, Canadian Killers. Host producer Aaliyah Davis tells the story of one of Canada's youngest serial killers. Here is Country Boy One. He stands around 6'2 and weighs about 200 pounds. In fact, his figure makes him an excellent hockey player and great overall athlete. He's fairly charming, polite, which is a reflection of the good home he comes from. He's popular and, oh yeah, he's a cold-blooded killer. Welcome to the first episode of Canadian Killers. This podcast will go over the crimes, investigation, and trial of known Canadian serial killers. But before we get started, I must mention this podcast will contain the topics of substance abuse, violence, sexual assault, and use explicit language. It is not suitable for younger audiences. November 27th, 2010 in British Columbia, about 10 minutes away from Vanderhoof. It was around 9.40 at night when a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer, Aaron Keller, saw headlights in the distance. A black pickup truck was speeding and driving erratically down Highway 27 from a remote logging road. Constable Aaron Keller said his gut told him something wasn't right, so he began following the truck and called for backup. Once backup arrived, they signaled for what they now could see was a GMC Sierra pickup truck to pull over. After running the license plate, the officers approached both sides of the vehicle, Keller taking the driver's side. As Keller carefully walked up, he noticed that the driver already had his license and registration out the window. Keller noted that this was weird. He had been working on the force for about a year and had done hundreds of traffic stops, and the majority of people had been too nervous to already have their papers in hand. In the driver's seat was Cody Lejmakov. Looking at the young man, Keller noticed smeared drops of blood on his chin and cheek. Peering hard in the car, he saw an open can of alcohol. With his uneasy feeling about the situation, he was a little relieved to now have a reason to search the car. He told Legend McCaw that he needed to search the vehicle because of the alcohol he saw. As Legend McCaw stepped out, he saw blood on the driver's legs. Keller asked about the blood, to which Legend McCaw told him that he and a friend had been poaching deer. He said that they had clubbed a deer with a pipe wrench and even adding, and I quote, I'm a redneck, that's what we do for fun. Even though Keller felt this wasn't the truth, he took Ledger McCoff into custody under the Wildlife Act and called a conservation officer to check the poaching story. Meanwhile, in Ledger McCoff's car, two crack pipes, drinks with two of the bottles half drunk, along with a pipe wrench with blood in its teething in a monkey backpack with a polka dot wallet were found. Soon, Keller said he got an answer from the conservation officer over the radio. He said that the officer told him it was the worst case scenario. 
At 12.07 a.m., Cody Legimakov was arrested for the death of Lauren Leslie. Lauren Leslie was only 15 years old. Her body was found face down with her pants around her ankles and her body battered beyond recognition. Lauren Leslie had a genetic disorder that left her blind in one eye and only having 50% vision in the other. She had been diagnosed with depression, but she was known to be an overall happy child who loved to go boating and tubing with her father. Her parents had split up years prior, but they co-parented happily. She was with her mother the night she disappeared, telling her she was off to go have coffee with a friend. Legend McCoff and Leslie met on a Canadian social networking site called Nextopia. He went under the name Country Boy One. Leslie was on the site to make friends. Legend McCoff seemed to have other motivations. Despite having a girlfriend, Legend McCoff would often ask Leslie explicit questions. She'd always ignore them, avoid answering, or just change the topic. The night of her disappearance, the text between the two started at 6 p.m. He asked her what she was doing that night, and after a little back and forth, she gave him the directions to her school, which would be their meeting place in Vanderhoof. He told her not to tell anybody that they were meeting, and she replied, we're just hanging out, right? Nothing sexual. Legend McCoff didn't answer. He just described his outfit and his car. Other messages were exchanged while she waited for him at the school. He told her he would get her drinks, and she told him to hurry up because it was cold. He bought drinks around 8.20, and 10 minutes later, Leslie was seen meeting up with a man in a pickup truck by her school's swing set. Even from Legend McCoff's own words, he came from a good home. He had a caring family, a loving girlfriend, good friends, and a decent job. So what would provoke such a random, violent attack? Well, first, this attack wasn't so random. At first, Legend McCoff denied all allegations, saying he'd only found Leslie's body. He claimed he saw four-wheeler tracks going off of the highway, so he decided to follow them. He found a cell phone, monkey backpack, and wrench, then followed drag marks to Leslie's body, and added that he didn't want to get caught up in the mix so he lied. After further interrogation, Legend McCoff admitted that he met up with Leslie. He said the two drank, had consensual sex in the truck, then they decided to go for a ride off-roading on the log road. He said that as they were driving, she began slapping herself and saying how she hated herself and demanded he stop the truck. She then got out and started hitting herself with a wrench she found on the floor and stabbing herself in the neck until she collapsed. Officers didn't buy this story either. After bringing up the inconsistencies to his story and the way that the body was found, Legend McCoff changed his confession. He admitted that he had done cocaine before they met up and they had sex on the logging road. And that's when she began hitting herself as she was pulling up her pants. He then added that he did hit Leslie just once or twice with the pipe wrench to put her out of her misery. Another RCMP officer heard the story and it sounded similar to another case he had been working on. Cynthia Ma was the mother of a little girl. Seven weeks before Leslie's death, her body was found in a tree line. Her pants were pulled down to her ankles and she had suffered from various stab wounds and blunt force trauma issues. 
Ma was born into a First Nations family. She did suffer from a cocaine addiction and used sex work to help fund her life, but was said not to be happy with her choices, so she kept in contact with her family and made efforts to attend NA and AA meetings. During the interrogation, he was asked about Ma's death, but denied knowing who she was. However, Ma's DNA matched samples found on a sweater and socks in Lechimakov's truck and a pickaxe found in his apartment. Sadly, she wasn't the only one. Natasha Montgomery was last seen three months before Lechimakov was detained. She was also from a First Nations family and was the mother of two. She was also said to have suffered from a drug addiction. She disappeared in August. Her family was aware of her lifestyle, but was immediately worried when she never tried to contact her children. Her body was never found. However, her DNA was found on the shorts Legimakov was wearing the day he got arrested. They were also found on a hoodie and bed sheets in other areas in his apartment. Jill Stanchenko was a mother of six who she loved dearly. She did struggle with a cocaine addiction that she tried to shake many times. A man collecting aluminum cans found her body in a gravel pit. She had died of a head injury and skull fracture, and the majority of her body was covered in bruises. It was noted that she suffered so much blood loss that they had difficulty collecting a sample for the autopsy. There was also strong evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. An unknown male profile was developed and matched to Lechmakov after he was arrested. Her murder happened in 2009, which would have made Lechmakov 19 at the time. This is how he got the label of one of Canada's youngest serial killers. According to Business Insider, the average serial killer is between the ages of 25 to 55. This is because people any younger don't have the neurological, organizational ability to venture on a killing spree. What makes this even more odd is the fact that, as we mentioned before, there's no evidence of a trauma-filled childhood or a diagnosed mental illness, and we may never be given a clear answer. During the trial, the judge and jury heard from 23 Crown witnesses, and the defendant Cody Legimakov. At first, Legimakov pleaded not guilty, but when asked about the crimes he was being accused of, he said he first met X at a house party his roommates had thrown. This sent the courtroom into a frenzy. Up until this point, nobody had heard the name X. And when he was asked to explain himself, he said because he knew he could serve jail time for his actions, he would refer to the three other people involved in these charges as X, Y, and Z because he knew snitches were treated with much respect in prison. Now, the stories he gave were long and rambly, so for time's sake, I'm going to do my best to summarize them. He told the jury that drug dealers showed up with Stanchenko at his apartment and he had sex with her. After that, the drug dealers told him that she needed to die because she owed them money. She was beaten to death in his apartment and the drug dealers took the body. He made a similar statement for Ma's death, saying that she arrived at the drug dealers one day and they told him she needed to die. 
He soon heard a cracking sound and Ma was supposedly dead. This time though, the body was moved in his truck and he drove them to LP Park where they noticed Ma wasn't really dead. So he gave them the pickaxe from his car and one of the drug dealers finished the job. And surprise, he testified a similar thing for Montgomery's death. The drug dealers had brought her into his apartment and said she needed to die. They beat her to death and then they asked him for a saw and dismembered her body and took it away. There was immediate skepticism to Lejimakov's story. It was almost like his storytelling ability was so elementary that he couldn't have more than one character doing something at the same time. At the last minute, Lejimakov tried to switch his plea to second-degree murder, but his plea was denied. The jury took less than a day to deliberate and announced that he was guilty on all four counts of first-degree murder. For each murder charge, he was given a life sentence without eligibility for parole until he served 25 years of that sentence. And because of the nature of his crimes and believed motivation, he was registered as a sex offender. Now, I couldn't find any record of Legend McCoff's mental health being checked after his imprisonment, but I did come across many theories of what could have driven his psychotic behavior, one being about his cocaine usage. Legend McCoff did testify to having a cocaine addiction on many accounts. According to Drug Free World, a known side effect to the usage of cocaine is bizarre, erratic, and sometimes violent behavior. Legend McCoff did testify to the usage of cocaine the night Leslie was killed, and it was a proven fact in court that he used sex workers to obtain the drug. Where the theory can fall flat is the fact that Legend McCoff was addicted meaning he would have used it often. This would have made it hard for nobody to witness this erratic behavior. At one point, he even lived with three female friends, and they all testified that Legend McCoff never exhibited violent behavior. Legend McCoff is still currently serving his time. In 2015, he filed for appeal due to the decision against changing his venue and legal representation. But... In 2016, the BC Court of Appeal endorsed the original judge's decision. Ledger McCoff is currently serving his time at Warkworth Institution, where he will most likely spend the rest of his life. The information for this podcast was brought by pages from the book, The Country Boy Killer, The True Story of Cody Ledger McCoff, court transcripts, and news coverage of the Cody Ledger McCoff trial. Next up, Die Hard, a series that delves into why some sports fans choose professional teams that always let them down. Host producer Zach McDonald looks at the origins of his own obsession with the New York Jets. Welcome to Die Hards. Die Hards is a podcast that explores the question, why do good people cheer for bad sports teams? I'm your host, Zach McDonald. This question for me is a personal one. It's part of a lifelong journey I've undertaken. For many families across North America, Sunday was a holy day to get together, to worship, and to celebrate the thing you most believe in. And for my family, it was the same. But instead of going down to a church, we used to worship at the altar of the New York Jets. 
I would don my old number 12 jersey, paying homage to the patron saint, Joe Namath, who brought the team its only Super Bowl in 1969. My father would dip a plain Ruffles chip into some French onion dip as if it was the Holy Eucharist. And CBS's lowest-ranked announced team would open up the service live from the Meadowlands and introduce a sermon about how the Jets had failed to meet expectations once again, about how pressure was mounting on another bad coach or a bad quarterback. And my younger brother and I would sit and try to heed off the evil spirit of the New England Patriots, who were led by modern-day Judas head coach Bill Belichick, who once spent an afternoon as the head coach of the New York Jets until he scribbled onto a napkin, I resign as HC of the NYJ, and he would go on to lead our division rival to six Super Bowls. But the question is why? Why did we do this to ourselves? I'm not even from New York City. I was born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario. I'm not related to anybody that was from New York. I hadn't even been to New York until I reached my teenage years. So why did we choose the Jets? There were so many teams to choose. We could have chosen the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Green Bay Packers or the Dallas Cowboys. One of these storied franchises that was guaranteed to be in competition for a Super Bowl. But no, my whole life I've been stuck with the New York Jets. And there has been so much pain that has accompanied that one small decision in my life. It's all started back in 1999 when the Jets were looking like Super Bowl contenders until Vinny Testaverde tore his Achilles in the first game of the season. Again, lost the football and covered it again. And holding his leg on the ground is Vinny Testaverde. Well, the way he's beating that turf, it's not good news for the New York Jets. There was week 17 in 2015 where the Jets had come off a miracle overtime victory against the dreaded New England Patriots. And they were about to lock up their first playoff berth in years against the lowly Buffalo Bills until our quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick threw an interception in the dying seconds of the game. Fitzpatrick. Picked off. It's over. A.J. Tarkley. A painful ending to the Jets season in Orchard Park. And most famously, there was the butt fumble. The New York Jets coming off two straight AFC championship berths looked to have a new star coach and a new quarterback in Mark Sanchez. But in his third season, Sanchez failed to look like the quarterback who had led the team to amazing victories in the previous two years and began a 10-year playoff drought by having one of the most embarrassing plays in NFL history. Indianapolis, the offensive coordinator, you got a busted play here. And then Sanchez gets hit, the ball is loose, and it's alive. I have never seen this before in my life. Watch this. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football, and it was the backside of Brandon Moore that knocked the ball out. That's right. Somehow, me, a football fan in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, is stuck cheering for a team whose most famous play is known as the butt fumble. And none of this has stopped me from loving the Jets. None of this has decreased my fandom even a bit. 
As I sit in my room, I'm staring at a New York Jets helmet that sits on my wall. I've gone to games, I've bought jerseys, I've spent hours and hours on message boards, poring over every little bit of Jets news and information that I can possibly find. For me, it's obvious where my love of the New York Jets started. Came from my father. My dad is the biggest New York Jets fan I've ever seen in my entire life. I've never seen somebody love something as much as my dad loves the Jets. And if cheering for the Jets is a religious experience, then I was indoctrinated into it by birth. My dad makes children to be Jets fans. My youngest brother's name is Joseph William McDonald after Joseph William Namath, the only man to ever win a Super Bowl for the Jets. So I decided to track back this whole mess and figure out why I started cheering for the Jets in the first place. I talked to my father about why he chose this as his team. So it was um, watching football with my dad, who's a, who was a very big uh, Dallas Cowboys fan. I wanted to pick a favorite team, and the Dallas Cowboys were definitely not that for me. I didn't like, um, I didn't like their image. And if you go back to Back to that time, so that's like, I don't know, 75 or 76, the generation gap um, between adults and young people was never, in my in my lifetime, has never been wider than it was back then. So my dad hated the, the young kids, hated their music, hated the hippie, all the crap that was going on with them he he hated every part of it and so the dallas cowboys were anti all of that even though i loved my dad and he's my certainly my best friend at that time i um i i i needed to be different to just because i it, it just didn't suit who i was and even in hearing this i started to realize how much of my dad's decision to become a new york jets fan has rubbed off on me I feel the same way that he does. I can't cheer for a single thing that feels prim and proper and held up. I'm always rooting for the ragtag groups, the charismatic guys, the people that are willing to think outside of the box. So the initial thought, I've always loved New York City. I'm not even sure um, what was behind that. But I mean, it was on TV a lot and it was a uh, big city. It just seems like this, it still does to me, it seems like the center of the universe, and it's just where everything good comes, and it's anti-California, which I hate. I'm not, uh, uh, being from Hamilton, we're a much grittier people, and California was just, ugh. then you look at both teams in New York, and the Giants are the established old person team. They're the Dallas Cowboys of New York. So I saw the Jets and, and their fan base back then. I think it was Shea Stadium. And they they were a crazy, rowdy um, group that, that the established establishment hated. And as my dad started to list off more and more reasons why he loves the Jets, I realized that not only did he transfer his favorite team down to me, he transferred a lot of the qualities that were most important to him through his team down to me. I love these same types of things. I love the counterculture. I'm always trying to find what the new underground hip-hop record is or what the cool thing people on the edges of society are listening to. And I wondered if this decision was this flippin' or if it was something that really plagued him. 
So I talked to my, and, and I put a lot of thought into this decision because <laughs> I knew this was going to be a lifetime decision. I'm not the type of guy who's going to choose another. I mean, I hate that. Like you, you make a decision um, and you stick with it. And so this was going to be my team for life. Then I asked my dad about, you know, if the Jets had ever won a Super Bowl, kind of give me anything. And he, he had a horrible look on his face. He's, he was not a fan of the Jets, and he was not a fan of um, their Super Bowl win in Super Bowl three. So I find out they won Super Bowl three, and it was the first Super Bowl played after my birth. So it's um, the first team to win a Super Bowl in my life. They're from New York. They were in green, so now it's looking very much like you know, there's a lot of good things here. And then he tells me, you know, that about the story about Joe Namath and guaranteed a victory and um, fur coat on the sidelines, did a pantyhose commercial. And he's just, as he was describing him, I, I think he was expecting me to hate that description as much as he hated it. But I loved it. I thought it was the, you know, I mean, here's this upstart team. And I always liked the underdogs. And, you know, that may even be personal, right? Because I was a small, um, I was very short, very skinny my whole life. And I didn't grow until I was like 17 or 18. So, I mean, this is only at eight, seven. But even at that point, I was uh, much smaller. So I always wanted the underdog story. And the story of that Super Bowl, to this day, I don't think there's anything that compares to it. So there it was. One of the most defining choices of my life wasn't even made by me. It was made by my dad, a short, rebellious young man who was looking to buck the system and go against the tradition. Now this is my story, but I need to know the other stories of people who are like me. What is it like for other people who cheer for teams as bad as the one that I cheer for? How do we get through this? Why do we do this? What is the thing that keeps us coming back game after game in spite of all of the disappointments? We have no control on the outcomes. We don't make decisions for our teams. We lay ourselves at the mercy of other people who run these organizations that we'll never know. So I'm going to find it out. I'm going to search for the people that cheer for the worst teams in sports. I'm going to talk to experts. I'm going to find and get to the bottom. Is there something that we as fans can do? Can we explain this phenomenon? Why does it mean so much to us? Why do good people cheer for bad teams? If you'd like to hear more of our podcast, go to SenecaJournalism.ca. If you want to know more about the Seneca Broadcast Journalism Program, go to SenecaCollege.ca. We also have our Summer Institute of Multi-Platform Journalism for Mature Students. Here's what one of our grads has to say. 
Hello everyone, I'm Aliyah Ali and I am at Rogers TV Kitchener. I've been there for two years. You know, if people ask me, how did you get into this? I always make sure I mention Seneca and I'm like a proud Seneca alumni because I honestly don't know what I really would have done without the program. It just gave me the tools I needed and that's the truth. So I recommend this program to anybody out there that is listening and is really interested in wanting to try something in journalism. This is such a great way to do it. I did the Summer Institute program program and um, it's really encouraging because we built such a good community and had so much fun. I'm really thankful for the skills I gained from Seneca so it gave me the confidence to do what I'm doing. You're starting off fresh, brand new. It's kind of exciting. Use this exciting opportunity to create something that's valuable to you, valuable to your audience and that can you know create some positive changes or whatever that you're looking to do. If you're interested, we're taking applications for classes starting in May. Go to SenecaCollege.ca and look for multi-platform journalism. Thanks for joining us. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.